Hello, my name is Lawrence Woodruff and I enjoy seeing really big hair. And I'm Michael Ralph. And I enjoy seeing tattoos. Professional development requires ongoing reflection and dialogue. So join us as we spend our Saturdays discussing education research and drinking beer. Today we are drinking Morbidly Obese Pug Extra Fudge Imperial Chocolate Stout from the Maplewood Brewery and Distillery. It pours like melted fudge. Yeah, like I was thinking maple syrup. Wow. I got a tremendous amount of foam, but seeing um, the bubbles fall reminds me a lot of what I see in a Guinness, right? When you watch the, the cascades coming back down, it's not the same, but it reminds me. <sighs> I want it to be more aromatic than it is. I wouldn't know. I've been sick. I've been sick for so long. I haven't smelled a smell in like three <laughs> weeks. All right. What are we doing today, friend? We read a longitudinal study examining U.S. gifted systems failing to identify students with spatial aptitude over the past 60 years. We searched for the causes and consequences of undervaluing spatial reasoning and identify classroom practices that can support those students in our schools. Later, we discuss ways to get the benefits of peer observation for teachers when observable colleagues are not readily available. And finally, in a mixed bag, we discuss a question from a listener who pushes us to dive into our assumptions about testing and teaching. Let's get started. We're starting off this month with spatially gifted, academically inconvenienced, spatially talented students experience less academic engagement and more behavioral issues than other talented students. By Joni Lankin and Jonathan Way. This was published in 2020. We got this really fresh off the presses. This is still only uh, an online first from the Journal of Educational Psychology. And I am conscientiously trying to say the full names of the people to avoid mononym practice. We don't always get the first names, but sometimes we do, and we did here, and so that's why I did that. So this paper takes a look at how gifted education has been done in our country for the last, you know, five or six decades. And so they looked at uh, some data sets collected in the 60s, in the 80s, and late 90s. The late 90s, yeah. And they asked uh, who is being allowed or invited to participate in these gifted programs uh, based on their their testing results. And so there's there are several different flavors of being gifted, if you will. Uh, there's this reading ability, there's this quantitative skill, and then there's this spatial talent that they kind of looked at, these three different um, classifications of gifted ability. And so they looked at who was participating in each of those programs, and then what was their performance in education, according to these couple of different publicly available data sets. Uh, and so we could get into more of what this actual paper was about. But that wasn't that's not actually what I feel like we're here to talk about. Why did you slate this? To me, this is saying, OK, there are students, there are students with skills we don't value in education. Some of them are really good at those skills we don't value. We should put those with all the other kids we're also underserving. Uh, so the should I don't care about. The why well, did I slate this paper? Well, why am I reading it? No, like there should I don't oh, care about. Okay, okay. Uh, well, first off, I slate the paper before I read it, so mm. so I haven't read it, so, so that doesn't really factor into why I slated it. Yeah. Uh, why I slated it was if gifted programs exist, 
They and do. we're not even going to argue with each other about whether they should or shouldn't. We're going to sit in a room and agree with each other for yeah. an hour. Yeah. If we accept the premise that gifted programs exist, they just, they do. Some students who are gifted in some ways get put into those gifted programs. Some students who are gifted in other ways don't get put into those gifted programs, and that's not on purpose. So right. there are consequences for students who get missed, and those consequences are grave. So if we value having students with their abilities being recognized, this group of students has been consistently um, not recognized on accident. And that's different from, okay, these skills are more valuable than those skills and we make that choice. Okay, we can have that conversation as a society. And so uh, I think it speaks to addressing a blind spot in, in my classroom. I, I can think of some students I've had over the course of my time teaching where a student is, is less engaged sometimes, but then I see them become really successful when they are appropriately challenged. And I don't, ha I didn't have the resolution of expertise to be able to identify them as spatially talented then, but I suspect that some of those, that was true. The individuals that they were looking at, oh, I mean, like we haven't contextualized this. This is looking at three papers about identifying and tracking students and their uh, gifted status over the course of multiple decades. Here's the thing is that when you, you, Mr. Ralph did what is better than gifted programs, in my opinion, because you did what was called, and I'm going to put it in quotations here, air quotes, a biotechnology course uh, that may have started out as an actual biotechnology course in its first couple years, as a, a first couple of a, it was a club and people were doing independent biology um, investigations, but it became an exploratory engineering course. The exploratory engineering course was full of students who were not at the top of their class in their verbal communication or writing capacity or reading comprehension and were not in the top of their class in their mathematics achievements. In fact, there are students whose participation in uh, sciences was discouraged at a systemic level because they were not good in their mathematic uh, achievement. Nevertheless, you created a space for them to explore engineering in a way because they had uh, an interest and an aptitude for the spatial relationships required to do that effectively. So you gave the students specifically investigated in this paper a space to grow that was appreciated by the institution. You, as a representative of the institution, created that space, but they were not considered gifted. So meeting the needs of the students by teaching them where they are at and providing the opportunities for them to grow where they are at is how you solve this problem. And the whole gifted title is completely irrelevant. Well, and there's a piece of this, it comes like way late in the paper, like the last couple of paragraphs that literally froze me because I didn't even know it caved my brain in. The, our educational system, according to this analysis of three studies collected over the course of four or five decades, suggests that students who are identified as the most capable, uh, spatially talented students in our body uh, are not being recognized by our systems. And also, another study done a handful of years ago found that education majors in college are the least capable on a spatial aptitude assessment. Those two things go together to say, we know 
that teachers are among the worst scoring, at least according to this one study, on spatial aptitude, and then the system they run doesn't recognize it. Those two things fit together perfectly in my head. Yeah, it does. And it feels like it screams to me of the value of integrating for those education majors greater representation of more disciplines and more areas of expertise and a greater breadth of experience to help them address this inadequate skill, which goes back to your comment of we can get better at things. We can. So if this system needs to do a better job of helping students with a spatial aptitude, we have to address the low performance of our education majors in issues of spatial aptitude. Like we, we see where this is happening. We know the people running the system are not well equipped to do this thing. Uh, that's the research that I want to read. Uh, that Yeah, I'd like to, oh, oh, this is neat now. Because it says, what else are we doing? Like, this is a big fat hole of discrimination in education. And so, because we prioritize verbal communication, written communication, and mathematics as like, these are the things, these are the things we care about. So people that are good at those things are the ones that go into teaching. And so it is self-perpetuating because if you don't like school, then you don't get you don't become successful in these credentials. You struggle to get secondary education, which is really like the post-secondary education is really about developing community opportunities and recognizing how to navigate those opportunities within these domains that you are you wish to become successful in. And we're closing the door to kids in high school or before, depending on the kid, because we're not recognizing what could be valuable societally. Yeah, and so that's what, what that's what this paper, I feel like what, the, what they're really finding is high school is basically serving as a, as a sieve that just removes a portion of those students because we're not valuing their talents and the, pe the students who persist and have them recognized in tertiary education, they, they just must persist. They just have to overcome the barrier of these earlier experiences in our K-12 education system. They're not being served. They just have to, they have to endure them. And that's a shame because we could support them. We could be better than an obstacle. And they talked about um, corollary uh, behavior problems and engagement problems, which makes sense because if what they value is not valued in the system, there's no place for them to find that value. There's no incentive for them to identify as part of that community. Well, and that... And that, that brings me back to, you mentioned the, the biotech program that I ran. Something that I think about, if we're talking about challenge, I think it's, at worth, it's worth mentioning. Uh, in that biotech program, they weren't doing these projects in addition to the day-to-day -day curriculum that I was delivering to them on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Uh, challenge, more challenge is not the same thing as just more workload. An, an enrichment worksheet that I give students who are done early is not really the same thing as increasing the challenge that I'm providing to them. So these projects were the end all be all of the course. This is what we were here to do. And so they asked a, a question that they felt like they could tackle. And some students were able to ask more complex questions or more questions that had um, more ambiguity, greater steps re required to find an answer. Um, and so they could each tailor that question to be an appropriate 
uh, appropriate challenge for them in the time they had for the semester. That's not the same thing as just dumping on an additional piece of work. If you're done early, here's something else to do. Here's something to go do on your weekend while everybody else goes and has social time. More is not the same thing as increased complexity. The point of this paper isn't actually to assess the efficacy of implementation of gifted programs. The point of this paper is to say, there are students that we are not valuing and they are underserved. And we have actually given that statement on this podcast for lots of demographics, and it can be included for people who have heightened mental agility for 3D spatial relationships that they can hold and manipulate in their head. It actually makes me think about kids that I have in my classrooms right now. Maybe there are other ways that I can serve them that I haven't been. And so that is super valuable. Yeah. Because the paper got me thinking about my kids differently. Good for you, paper. It really did. There's two in my head actually right now. Because the key is they can't, it's not that they're spatially gifted. It's that they have spatial capacities that they cannot communicate or describe because their verbal and written interactions are not advanced. That's actually the issue. Um, I have a student who on his college biology tests is drafting recreations of models that we're using that are pretty intricate, but he does not have the writing skills to translate those models into something that makes sense. Uh, and so I'm wondering if his spatial skills if I found another way to assess the interactions and relationships, would I be able to find he knows more than he is able to communicate to me through my current model? And I haven't, today is the first thing I've thought about that. And I think that's, that's, that's exactly what? the right kind of takeaway from yeah. this paper is we are predisposed. We have been selected because we have that ability. Uh, my first couple of years at Olathe, I was assigned to ISS coverage in one of my hours off. Um, and sometimes I would, have conversations with the students who are in ISS, not always, but sometimes. And there was one instance where there was a student in there, uh, never seen him before. I didn't have any knowledge of who he was as a student before we had, we shared this hour together. Um, but it was just the two of us in ISS. And so we were, we had a conversation. I don't even remember how it started. I wasn't being intentional to talk to him. It just, we started having a conversation about just some of the some of his experiences in class and just how things were. He asked me some questions and I talked, we just, we had a conversation for a while. Um, and it was, it was pleasant. I really don't remember much of the content. It was just, it, it felt like it felt good to be connecting with this student who I didn't know. Um, and uh, I, part of what I learned in all of that was that he, he, he wasn't experiencing success broadly in school, um, which was a part of why he had landed in ISS and had made the choices that had, that had got him there. And so, we talked about that some also, and we just had, we just had some conversations. And then a couple of days later, I didn't see him again. That was the only day I saw him in ISS. I didn't see him again. And then a couple of days later, he came and visited me in my classroom. He found my classroom, came and visited me and delivered a one page piece of art that he had created. And I was like, Hey, I, I made this for you. And he gave it to me. And then that was it. Like he like turned and was gone. And I remember that because the art was incredible. The art that he created was, in, I was, I was impressed immediately. Like, wow. And I, I was even a little ashamed at how impressed I was because of the assumptions I think that I was making about his abilities per our conversations about his other academic struggles. Right. 
And so I was, this is incredible. And just having the very brief interaction that we'd had in that hour in ISS was enough to, for him to feel like his work would be valued enough that he was, it was worth giving to me. And it, that had an impact on me. Um, just seeing it and seeing my wrongness. Uh, and, and that was not common. That was not common in my time in ISS, but that, that picture hung on the board right behind my desk. Um, I didn't have a big art board with lots. That was not common for me to get things from students, but his picture hung on my wall uh, until I left Olathe East. It, it hung up there. Know your students. So for our second segment, we are looking at professional development opportunities for music teachers. This paper is titled Music Teachers Perspectives on Live and Video Mediated Peer Observations as Forms of Professional Development by Alfredo Bautista, Joanne Wong, and Alberto Calbedo Mas. This was published in 2019 in the Journal of Music Teacher Education. And so this is a study that got done in Singapore um, with 12 primary music teachers. And so uh, this was qualitative work, basically interviewing each of these music teachers about their experiences related to peer observation as a part of their professional development experience. This paper actually felt like uh, revisiting my teacher education program. It's like back to basics, foundational, let's, what are the priorities? What are the things we got to keep track of? And peer observations, our critical component of professional development. Be in each other's classrooms. We've said that lots of times on this podcast. This podcast probably wouldn't exist if Ralph and I weren't in each other's classrooms so often, our first couple years of teaching together. And I had a mentor last year and I was in her room and she was in my room and she still comes to my room and I still go to her room. So we, it's, in, on this show, being in each other's classrooms has always been a foundational personal priority as practitioners. Yeah. Uh, and I'll admit that that's a factor in me queuing this particular paper for you because I knew that I knew that the primary segment was not really going to resonate the same way. So I was like, I got to get, I got to tee up something that Lawrence is going to like in the second segment. Uh, and so I, I didn't know if this would be quite square enough, but I was like, hey. Well, the irony is I don't really know much more to say about this paper other than, yep. Yeah, seems thumbs good. up. Well, the so this if we accept that being in each other's classrooms is valuable, then we got started looking at how do we make that true for all teachers in all places teaching all subjects. My uh, because I can go down to your science classroom when I teach in your dis in your department in a department of eighteen teachers. We can make that happen. But specifically for music teachers, one of the problems is uh, they're often a department of one. They're often the only music teacher in that building uh, in many cases in that district and especially in places like Kansas a lot of those districts are a considerable driving distance from the next district and so finding a peer with whom you can do an observation can be a problem and so this paper was about can we find other ways to provide some version of that observation experience and those benefits to folks when um, they maybe don't have an immediate answer for how do I be in my colleagues classroom. Yeah, there was a, a little bit of a, I feel like a, a purpose driven for this research. There is 
they mentioned a professional development organization with the acronym STAR. I don't remember what that stands for, but in Singapore, this music teacher professional development organization that is attempting to, or maybe they are still doing this, uh, create a library of recorded teacher lessons that can be accessed from anyone who's a member of the organization so that when you can't go to the teachers down the hall because the teacher down the hall is actually um, 150 miles away, when you can't make that trip to make that observation, there are still teachers that you can observe. Which seems valuable. I have my worry, video observations, uh, and the, the paper lays out um, some description of how they're pretty common in uh, teacher pre-service teacher training programs. And that's true. We use them in my, in my program, we use them. One of my concerns is that video observations take away from some of that personal connection. There's only so much that you can see on a video that you just you can't see everything the way that you can if you're actually in a classroom trying to make all the same observations and have the same you know room feel of being in a classroom. If I if I'm just a wireframe monkey, I am not I'm not best case scenario. Yes. Uh, they even, um, in their uh, framework section, they even kind of reference some like fundamental developmental psychology about how, you know, kids who, when they look at behaviors of others, will then mimic those behaviors. And so there's a, um, there's a drive, like if, if, it, if it really works as monkey see, monkey do, then we need to be responsible for watching good monkeys. That's what we need to do. So if you're going to curate this kind of professional development um uh, video series of teachers teaching, you want to make sure that you are highlighting consistently good practices, good calls uh, that are worth emulating and worth learning from. And if you can't get the real monkey, go for the wireframe, right? We know that that's better than nothing and, and provide the support for the teachers that need it. I have to concede that there was one thing about this idea of a teacher library, a teacher recording library, and that is it does facilitate autonomy for the teacher to develop in the way that they want. If in the sense that, you know, if you ask a teacher, what do you want to improve about their practice? They may give you an answer and then they go watch another teacher and that's just the solutions they need aren't there because that teacher is working on different things. But if you have a library of different teacher experiences and you got them sorted and cataloged and say, I'm having this very particular problem, I would like to improve in this very particular way, I can find the videos relevant to my need and watch those. And uh, I found that to be uh, compelling as a resource. This is I don't want to argue with you on tape, but I want to brainstorm on it just right here, right now, uh, because I agree with you. And the fact that I agree with you gives me caution. <laughs> I feel like that should be on tape. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, because that, um, I really like to get into the technical aspects of what it means to teach. I really like to think about those nuts and bolts. Uh, and I'm unusual in all sorts of ways. I'm, I'm, I'm an odd duck. And so I'm thinking about if I was going to try to guess how many teachers, given the choice between being able to make a personal connection with a colleague and then growing in whatever ways are organic through that relationship versus having a particular technical priority and not being will being interested in dispensing with the relationship piece to pursue the technical priority i would make that choice but i know that i predict that i'd be in a mostly empty room super minority in, in breakouts with those two options 
And so that's really my top concern with video libraries because video libraries exist in other contexts, right? Like there isn't like an amazing video library that I'm aware of, but people do video classroom observations and make them available for people to look at. Um, and I'm imagining if I were to say to my faculty of teachers, everybody go watch one videoed lesson and then give me your takeaways. And I'm trying to imagine how that would be received and what kind of quality reflections that would prompt. Well, I don't think assigning people to watch, I think assigning people to yeah. watch the videos is the exact opposite of the thing sure. I just said. Okay. Because if the library exists and we're talking about a group of teachers who can't talk to each other because there aren't any other teachers in their department and they can't go see each other. Okay. Um, they can go to the topics and videos about their self-directed um, improvement and say, okay, I'm having this trouble with my kids doing these octave jumps. So I'm going to go find videos that are specifically about teaching that. And I can watch teachers teach that. And I don't have to waste my time with a bunch of garbage because I can decide what I want to get better at and look it up and do it. And I'm not going to be influenced by, even if I have another teacher down the hall, but they're working on different things, I can watch them every day and they're never going to address that problem. So I'm never going to get better on this problem that I prioritize. Yeah, that's absolutely that I am persuaded. And that's even consistent with one of Ryan's comments about. Um, and so I actually I spent some time thinking about this because a video is one obvious answer, and especially in places that are more remote, like uh, like rural Kansas. If I have to drive an hour to find my next colleague, I literally can't make that happen, at least not on a regular basis. And so what are some other ways to be creative about solving this problem? But I thought I, I don't engage with that problem very often. And so I actually reached out and had a conversation with somebody else who does have this problem more often. Um, so I spoke with us. Uh, so I went to high school with Ryan Royal. He is the director of bands and instrumental music at Trinity Academy in Wichita, Kansas. I sent him a message as I was reading this paper and said, hey, what do you know about this topic? And he knows a lot. So I, I asked him and he gave me some things. What do you say? He has amazing ideas, which makes sense because people who work in this space have been thinking about it longer than me who doesn't work in this space. There are some there are some music colleagues that he has nearby, but he mentioned that there are some robust online spaces and professional organizations where conversations occur and even experts come in. Some of the composers of the music that people are arranging for their bands um, even contribute to discussions of those pieces and help you know make suggestions for how they can happen. And so even the you know the online AP Biology community, um, I can think of an instance where maybe I don't work in a department with this person. But if I, if I know them, at least in an online digital space, and they say, hey, you're working on this problem, check out this video of me from two years ago when I was teaching a thing and thinking about that, I would watch that. Yeah, it's, it's a distemporal, it's a dis, you're, you're un, the opportunity cost of watching the actual monkey is time. Yeah. And you, the digital videos, for as much as we can articulate that they are inferior for many reasons, don't have that particular restriction. And so if you can build the, if you have the community aspect, you can get a lot of relationship in place for this video library. And so for somebody who's instituting this, whether it be Star, I don't know how Star is instituting their video library, but for people who are trying to use videos um, as a stand-in for classroom observations, um, instituting that video within a community of practice. And so you have those relationship pieces um, to support somebody who's going to be trying to work with those videos, I can absolutely see how that could be compelling. 
Uh, one of the things that Ryan pointed out was that he actually worked with um, other folks involved in music um, coming in and working in his classroom. And so he pointed out inviting like college college conductors or instructors and asking them to come do a guest lesson with his band. And then he's observing his own classroom with a guest instructor to be learning about how they're tackling particular concepts or working with particular groups of instruments. And that blew my mind because that is an amazing idea. That's a fantastic idea. Uh, not just expanding your your notion of what your professional network might be beyond the bounds of my specific assignment. Like who else conducts bands, right? In biology, I think about reaching out to scientists, but that's true in every subject. You reach out to the people who are doing your work and that's much more broad than just my particular high school assignment and having them come into your classroom. So then you can work on scheduling. You can work on, you can work on all the other things to make it happen and then have that professional learning in that, in that spot. And even with your students, which I would presume makes it even more valuable for him. And so I thought that was a spectacular suggestion. Um, I'd do that tomorrow. That'd be amazing. There was one thing in here that I thought was amusing. I don't, you know, it's kind of a little funny statement to me uh, under the section about uh, one of the benefits of peer observation is allowing for better understanding of application of teaching strategies, which is basically what this whole conversation is about. And it said that, you know, people that are struggling to, um, implement lessons, which was, I did find was interesting in this paper. They said that some of these teachers didn't have an education background. They had some music background, but they weren't teaching experts. And so uh, the complexities of actually running a classroom were kind of outside of their grasp. So that understanding teaching nuance um, from viewing a video was easier uh, when watching when watching others than when writing lesson plans, reading extracurricular guides, or even textbooks, they said, <laughs> that watching uh, watching your peers had a greater uh, return than even textbooks. I thought it was interesting they put even textbooks as, as though textbooks were like the, the, you know, tried and true bedrock touchstone way all to teach fails, people things will work yeah if all else fails that yeah you're doing all this weird experiential stuff but man when that's gone just give them the textbook you're gonna get in it a, all taken in a performance care of. art no less right exactly yeah. yeah so i thought that was interesting that or even textbooks uh made the made the quote uh, yeah, so uh, so get in each other's classrooms. They pointed out um, in some of their background literature, uh, even though most teachers in this study, you know, most music teachers agree and emphasize that being in each other's classrooms is powerful. And Ryan reiterated that being in each other's classrooms has produced some of the greatest changes and greatest improvements in his practice. Um, only about fifty percent of professional development efforts that they looked at included that in their effort. So the initiatives for professional development aren't doing the thing that the professionals want in order to develop. Uh, but they did also point out that there is currently a trend of increasing support for being in each other's classrooms. And so I think if I'm gonna if I'm gonna have a should coming out of all of this, we should be in each other's classrooms. We should, as administrators, carve out time and support, material support for teachers being in each other's classrooms because it takes time and it takes energy. You can't just say, do it on your plan because I have to plan on my plan. Yeah. So we have to provide material support for teachers to be in each other's classrooms. And if there aren't other classrooms to be in for whatever reason, 
record yourself for another teacher. Recordings are, might be a good way to go about having some of those same benefits. We're in this together. This is the mixed bag. All right, so our third segment is a mixed bag because it's got all kinds of crap in it. We have a comment from Aaron Matthew. He made a comment in response to uh, last month's segment about formal language and logical language versus uh, everyday casual language, saying that he feels that we ha may have some kind of obligation to prepare our students for the formal language that they will have to take or that they will encounter in standardized tests that they will have to take in their course of being a student. Uh, and this, he kind of posed the question, how responsible are we for one, using casual language to help our students uh, uh, do successful, be successful in our tasks, but also helping them access formal language so that they can be successful in tasks that aren't written uh, with casual language. Which is interesting because I kind of reject the premise that we should be preparing them for that formal language in the first place. If our standardized tests are measuring our students' ability to understand formal academic language and their understanding of science or their understanding of math or their understanding of reading or whatever the subject is, uh, then that's kind of a bad measurement. Yep. When I made the philosophical vow to become a teacher and gird myself against the complexities of this profession, it wasn't because I was really resolved to have my kids crush the AT ACT in whatever form that it is presented to them. That's not why I'm a teacher. Uh, so I'm sitting here now trying to ponder what would I say to disagree with me? And really, the answer to the question, what is the purpose of the ACT? I think the number one purpose of the ACT is predicting college success. When I understood, when I read his comment, I was thinking about like state assessments, like for school evaluation, which we give to students when they're freshmen and sophomores. ACT, SAT, AP exams, because they're trying to predict college success. If I'm trying to say what things predict college success, I think ability to interpret and understand and predict academic language or other formal languages are probably involved. And so it probably is related to those, uh, those measurements. So if my goal as a teacher is to prepare students to be successful in higher education, then I must prepare them for formal academic language. That's fine. I'm just saying that's not why I became a teacher. Right. That's not, yeah, you don't have the if, so the them is, the them yeah. is irrelevant. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The, and I, I felt good about rejecting like the if is irrelevant because the then doesn't matter, but the then does matter for higher education relevant exams. ACT, SAT, AP scores, yeah, I don't think I have an immediate argument against that. And so then I had to default back to, but my purpose is not to prepare them for higher education any more than it is to prepare right. them for the workforce. My job is to help them grow. And I believe that should be the purpose of higher education. Do, they should look at the students they have and say, how do you want to get better? What rights and privileges does a high school graduate, does a high school diploma confer to you versus what rights and privileges does an undergraduate or a baccalaureate diploma confer to you? 
because ultimately this comes down to uh, this is a mastery model like a high school diploma means you can do x y and z a bachelor's diploma means you can do x y and z well i'm not saying they have to change the standards but the work that they have to do to get them to reach those standards should be in response to the capacities needs and developmental capacities of the students oh that's true they may have farther to go to get there and you will start with where they i think you should start with where they are at and get them there uh oh man okay uh, are prerequisites appropriate prerequisites exist they they do should they be abolished that's a great that's the right question to make me reconsider positions good for you oh man that's crazy it's requiring change in me and part of it is because of the spatial reasoning paper we wrote so i've always been like people who haven't taken chemistry shouldn't take college biology i've held that position what if that's not the problem i think it is what if that's me not teaching them where they're at what if that's me um because like, I try. I mean, we spent a lot of fundamentals. We spent a lot of time at the beginning of the year on the fundamentals of chemistry. We I know that about you. Yeah. Uh, we spent a lot of it. And um, what if it's something else? I have been giving myself confirmation bias. Uh-huh. So I believe it continues to be reasonable to expect that my students need to have chemistry be successful in this class. I mean, I, I'm thinking about this. I don't know if this will give you peace or not because you have, that's an important question and only you can answer that. Right. You can answer that question. I can't put a nine-year-old in your college biology class. I can't do that. So prerequisites should exist. Like first grade is a prerequisite of college biology. Uh, yeah. So the only question is where should prerequisites exist? There is a limit to how much you can differentiate. There is a limit. It should be higher than pretty much all of us have right now, but there is a limit. Okay. Yeah, I like that. I like that. I'm there on that. And so then if we go back to the ACT, SAT entrance exams, AP. I only have any meaningful experience with the AP exams and the AP biology exams specifically. But I feel great about the AP biology exam. Like I feel high confidence and high esteem for the for the exam, for how it's crafted, for how it's graded and what it what it measures. I, I believe it. Uh, I may not I may not always make it my top priority when I teach biology, but I do believe it. But yeah, that we're that's not what we're pursuing but that is a good faithful representation of what it intends to measure okay i i do so is my job as a teacher to prepare every student to be successful in the ap exam no no unless you're an ap teacher even as an ap teacher i think that there's wiggle room it's mostly but i think that there's wiggle room that's not really the point of this conversation is it my, okay, let's make it with the point of the conversation. Aaron's comment was about how much is it our responsibility to prepare our kids to be successful for the ACT? If the paper is about- No, 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 no. How much is it our responsibility to prepare my students for the formal language of those exams? Yeah. Which oh, is different. That, yeah, because that's the responsibility of the exam makers, not us. So I guess the, we don't have a conflict. The, the, the technical language, understanding- like, what is a biome? What is a metabolic pathway? Like, if you don't know what a metabolic pathway is, then you certainly don't understand some of the characteristics of how metabolic pathways but that's, work. That's a that's a content knowledge, right. not not extra tasks related to a logical relationship. Right. 
Describe. I can phrase my request for information in a way that is clear to everyone, right? I think that they do. Like the AP Biology video specifically, I think that they do broadly. So, how much of my job is to prepare them for the formal language of those exams? I still get back to none. I don't think it's my job. I think it's my job for to prepare them for the um, the technical language of biology. Yeah. But the well, formal language of of logic or of whatever we may imagine to be, you know, the, the passive voice of the antiquated scientific speaker, uh, no, no, nope. Well, describing task complexity is is sort of different than applicable terminology. Yeah. Technical terminology. Technical terminology. Well, it's the different. precision associated, like if I can say this little sack with enzymes, I should. But if there's more information in using the technical term of peroxisome, fine. Yeah. If I if I need that information to understand the request that I'm making. But even in that case, on the AP on the AP biology exam, they're gonna define what a peroxisome is. And like peroxisome comes up in many people's freshman biology class, but they will define it because they're not assessing vocabulary knowledge. Yeah. Uh, so I guess the official answer, Aaron, is some, sometimes. Intent matters. How was the beer? Uh, it got... It got better. Yes, it did. I initially felt, man, this is really bitter and I'm not going to like it. But that was true for like half of the first one. And then the second half of the first one, I just shrank it right down. The, the ch it doesn't come through with chocolate. Like I heard fudge and thought right. chocolate. Me too. And I didn't catch chocolate. But especially getting into the second one, I feel the like it's got that heaviness and like a little bit of the, you said bitterness of what like a good dark heavy fudge might be. I, yeah, I do catch that. Um, and what's funny is I originally I said it wasn't very aromatic, but it seems more aromatic now. Maybe I'm just drunk. I'd be curious to taste the um, variety of this morbidly obese pug that doesn't have the extra fudge quality. Because I know there's a couple of different veritols. I don't know how to say that word out loud. Yeah, no, that seemed right. Um, and so I'd be curious to taste the one that doesn't have the fudge aspect to it. Thanks for tuning in to another month. We've been kind of all over the place this month, but we, re we really enjoy you joining us and uh, giving us things to think about, giving us comments or additions that might stretch our thinking even further. Remember that this is better with all of you. Uh, so we look forward to touching base again next month. We want to know how you improve and we want to know how we can improve. So if you have any comments, let us know. As we pursue growth, <laughs> discuss research, and struggle well.